Well, good afternoon, everyone. As Alicia said, my name is Brogan. I am a trainee vicar. I'm training in Durham at the moment, um, but living up here with my wife, Beth, and serving St. Thomas, Newcastle. It's a pleasure to unpack these verses from Philippians today. Uh, as Alicia said, please do have them in front of you in a paper Bible or on your, on your phone, or if you're at home, please do keep them up in front of you. The book of Philippians is a letter, and it's written by St. Paul. St. Paul has been traveling around the world starting churches, and he started this church in Philippi. He goes on to start other churches and is ultimately arrested. But this church, hearing of his plight, are moved with compassion, and they send him a financial gift and someone to help support him. So naturally, he writes back saying thank you, and he gives them some instruction on how to live in the context that they are in. The context that the Philippian church are in is this. They are a community facing crisis. Much in the same way as we are a community facing crisis today. It's a very different crisis they're being persecuted, and we'll unpack why in a moment. We, of course, are facing uh, the coronavirus pandemic. The two are different in the sense that persecution was affecting just them because they were Christians. It's affecting all of us as a society, not just churches, not just the people of God. But nonetheless, Paul's advice to them about how they can be a faithful community in the midst of crisis has much to say to us today. They were facing a crisis mainly because Philippi was a rather nice place to retire. Philippi in northern Greece um, was a beautiful, a beautiful place, a Roman colony, and so loads of Roman soldiers settled there after they had retired. It was a deeply patriotic place. It was a, a place where honour and militaristic culture reigned with a, a citizenry who would say, we owe our lives to Caesar and the Roman Empire. If you wanted a motto for this town, for this city, it would be Caesar is Lord. And yet there emerges this group of people whose primary allegiance is not to Rome but to Jesus Christ, who say that Jesus is Lord as opposed to Caesar. And so they are persecuted. The atheist historian Tom Holland, in his brilliant book, Dominion, puts it like this. To abandon the cult of the Caesars was not merely to court danger, but to risk the very fabric of society. Yet some, for all this, did find in the new identity proclaimed by Paul, not a menace, but a liberation. We're going to unpack that liberation tonight. We're going to see that in a time of crisis, we are called to be a countercultural community. We're called to be a Christ-like community. And we're called to be a community content in the salvation that has been won for us. So let's start there in verses one through to four, a countercultural community. 
Paul's opening premise here is this. Your experience of God should shape the way you treat one another. He opens with these words. Therefore, if you have any encouragement in being united with Christ, if any comfort in his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness or any compassion, he's not doubting that they have those things. He's not doubting that they know the care and the comfort of Christ. He's saying you do know these things. Therefore, verses two and three, make my joy complete. Do nothing out of selfish or vain ambition. Rather, value others above yourself. Why does he write this to this community at this time? Well, he knows, of course, that the human inclination in a time of crisis tends towards selfishness. And we saw this at the start of lockdown. The most enduring scenes of this pandemic may be the queues outside Asda of people queuing up to get that sweet, sweet pack of three-ply toilet roll, you know, <laughs> or, or pasta or, or whatever else it was. But we don't just see it in the, in the world around us. If we're honest, we see it in ourselves. I, like many people, uh, did a whole load of baking during lockdown, specifically a whole load of sourdough. And so I was fortunate to have plenty of flour in the cupboard. When someone said to me, hey, Brogan, you've got loads of flour. Could I borrow some? My instant reaction was to pause and take a step back and think, no, no, you can't have some of my flour because then there might not be enough for me. And I've only had 14 loaves of sourdough in the last three days. <laughs> you know, I've also taken up running since the, you know, um, it's... Uh, <laughs> That was my instant reaction. Because fear and need tend to breed selfishness. And in the Philippian context, this is coming out too. They're already starting to show some signs of division. Paul, later in this letter, pleads with two people to start getting on with one another because they've started to turn against each other. They've become more worried about self-preservation than gospel presentation. They've become more worried about self-preservation than gospel presentation, being the people that God has called them to be. Samuel Butler, the novelist, puts it like this, the first law of nature is self-preservation. If this is one way to live, what is the alternative? Not just the alternative, but what is the way of life that we are called to as followers of Jesus? The alternative is, as Paul says, to know the care and the comfort and the love of Jesus Christ. He's building on Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6, where he says, so don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all this will be given to you. This is a deep, deeply countercultural way of living, to know the love and the care of God and therefore be freed to share and care for one another. And it's deeply countercultural because the world says this, 
care for yourself, no one else will. The Bible says, care for each other because God is caring for you. I wonder, where do you notice in yourself the tendency to close your hand and hold on tightly when fear of need comes? We do it with all sorts of things, not just strong white bread flour or spelt. I really like spelt flour. (laughs) We do it with our money. We do it with our time. We do it with our emotional energy. We fear that we won't have enough, so we don't want to give away. But brothers and sisters, this is not the life that we're called to. We're called to a life of freedom, not fear. We're called to a life of service. And living like this requires real humility, especially in a time of crisis, which is why Paul defines humility for us in verse 3. He says, in humility, value others above yourselves. Students, it is going to take some real humility to do a shopping run for somebody who's got coronavirus and you know for a fact that they have been out partying in other people's houses every night of freshers. It's going to take some humility and say, I know what I think about that. I know that I was staying at home, but I'm still going to serve you because that's what I'm called to do. I say do their shopping. I don't mean like go and give them a hug, like just to, just to clarify. It takes real humility to turn up to church early to help with the deep clean that we do before everyone arrives. When you know deep down that you probably are a bit busier than a lot of other people who come to church. It takes real humility to have that conversation with someone who's quite lonely. And you know you've got other things you want to get on with or maybe you're not particularly interested in the topic of the conversation. But... In humility, we value them over and above how we value ourselves. Where do we learn this from? Well, Paul uh, explains for us in verses 5 through to 11 that we learn it from Jesus himself. The second point tonight then, we are called to be a Christ-like community. Paul's model of humility is Jesus. He reminds the church in Philippi who they are to look like. Now, Jesus demonstrates his humility in two ways. The first is by becoming human, and the second is through going to the cross. We're going to start with the first one of those tonight first. Look for me in verses 6 and 7 if you've got a Bible in front of you. What phrase do we notice appears twice? It's the phrase, very nature, or in some words, form. It's the Greek translation, of the, it's the translation from the Greek of the word morphe. Who, that's Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature 
of a servant. Note Paul uses these words about Jesus being God and Jesus being human, which leads us to the conclusion that Jesus was fully God and fully human. He is fully God who becomes human, takes on humanity for our sakes. He's not just a God pretending to be a human. You know, like he wakes up in heaven in the morning and then tootles down to earth and pretends to be human for the day and then goes back to the comfort of eternal glory. Because that's not real humility, is it? That, I mean, that's just deception. Like, that's not humility. Nor is he a human who becomes so enlightened that he becomes God through prayer and learning and thinking. But really, he's a human who's become God. That's not humility either, because at some point, a human has assumed to be God in that scenario. No. Jesus' great humility is this. He is God. He becomes human for our good. Two natures in one person. As Ben mentioned, I started uh, vicar school this week. I've forgotten how much everyone loves long words um, in, in theology. If you want to know the theological term for this, it's hypostatic union. It's got its own term and everything. <laughs> Two natures in one person, Jesus Christ. It's, it's a, a, a moment in history that has its own title because it splits history. Because God doesn't just become human, he becomes, for the first 13, 14 years of his life, a refugee fleeing a state that wants to kill him because of his ethnicity. He doesn't just become human and take a a cushy office job. He works hard with his hands. He doesn't become human and then live to a ripe old age and see many godchildren and grandchildren around him. He dies brutally at the age of 33. This is real humility. What does he do with this humanity that he takes on himself? Well, we've alluded to it there. The second way he demonstrates his humility is he goes to the cross. Verses, uh, sorry, verse 8 puts it like this. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Now that would be mind-blowing enough if Paul hadn't just defined humility for us in a very specific way in verse 3. He says, rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Brothers and sisters, this is the life-changing history-transforming, mind-blowing truth that is what it is to be a Christian. That Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, looks at you and me and considers our lives more worthy than his own, more valuable to him than his own. That he walked up the hill of Calvary, valuing our lives 
over his, that he died on the cross valuing our lives over his, that he rose in glory to proclaim, I have valued your life over my own. Which doesn't leave us a lot of wiggle room when we look in the mirror and want to say, not good enough. Because Jesus Christ valued your life and my life more than he valued his own. It really doesn't leave us a lot of room for manoeuvre when we look at our achievements and feel inferior. Because Jesus Christ valued our lives more worthy than his own. And a particular point in the crisis that we face is this more and more people will devastatingly find themselves unemployed in the coming six months. If you've ever been unemployed or underemployed, or have spoken to someone who has, you'll know this. What's often so crushing about unemployment is that there is this existential crisis that hangs over you. What am I worth? My time is not worth someone else's money. What I have to offer is not wanted. If there was ever a time that we as a church needed to live this out more boldly and more wonderfully than ever before, it is now. That your worth does not depend on what someone is willing to pay you. That your worth does not depend on your job title or your employment history. Your worth is that Jesus Christ looked at you and considered your life more valuable than his own. That is what it means to be a Christian. Jesus counted our lives worthy of purchase. Purchased from a life of wondering whether we are loved. Purchased from a life of constantly having to prove ourselves to society, to each other, to our boss. Purchased from an eternity without an eternal relationship with the God who loves us and knows us and made us and gave his life for us. Jan Hus, the 14th century Czech theologian and philosopher, a forerunner to Luther in many ways, put it like this, rejoice that the immortal God is born so that mortal men and women may live in eternity. Maybe this is the first time that you have ever heard how much your life is worth to God. Maybe this is almost completely new information for you. If that's the case, we would love to talk with you afterwards. Maybe tonight you, you hear of Jesus' love for you and you have concluded that you want to join with this church in Philippi and say, Jesus is Lord. If he values my life that much, he can have it. I choose to follow him tonight. If that's you and you're here in person, come and find us. Come and chat with us. If you're on the live stream, drop us a message. We would absolutely love to hear from you and help you get started as you think through this and start following Jesus. 
So how do we become this Christ-like community, modeling Jesus' humility? If these words are the script for a beautiful play, how do we become actors and performers living it out to the world? Well, it's interesting that Paul writes these verses as a song or a hymn of worship. When Paul wants to teach the church in Philippi about godly living, he doesn't say, sit by yourself and think. He says, come together and sing. Because worship is adoring the one who values our life above his own. Worship is adoring the one who first adored us. And in verses 9, 10 and 11, we get a heavenly picture of worship. Note, it is not just singing or speaking. It's adoration in every sense. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Worship is what we do with our bodies in service of one another and in caring for our communities. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's what we say. It's what we do when we sing or speak in church. Worship is our lifeline in crisis. That is why Paul writes these words to the church in Philippi, because it lifts our eyes above our situation and unto the one who holds our situation. When we worship, we join our voices with saints and angels in heaven. Saints here being Christians who have gone before. This is a picture of heavenly worship. So when we declare these words, we join with brothers and sisters around the world who are today, like the church in Philippi back then, persecuted because of their faith in Jesus Christ. We join with saints throughout history who have faced pandemics before and come through, come through them still faithful to Jesus. When we worship, we join our voices with those in heaven proclaiming the worth and the love of Jesus, those people who gave out of their poverty or their wealth to lay the very stones that we are sitting in today that is our church building. When we worship, we join with the voices of of those saints who first brought the good news of Jesus to these shores just 70 miles up the road on Holy Island. That's who we're worshipping with when it says that every tongue acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar, not fear, not questions over our own sense of self-worth, but Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This crisis will not endure forever. There will be a time when we can meet together again and we won't be wearing masks and we will all be beaming. There will be a time when this is over, but until then, we worship.
There is so much we could say about worship in this passage. But the only correct response, really, is to do it. So before we head into our final section of the sermon, I would love us all to stand together. We're going to proclaim these words. We can't sing, but we can speak. So please, with face masks on, let's still ourselves, because we're going to say these words with saints throughout eternity and angels praising at the throne of heaven right now. We're starting from verse 5, and we're going to read through to 11. This is in the NIV version. If you can't see it um, and you need to look it up on your phone, it will be on the screen. So let's say this together. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Can I get an amen? Amen. 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 Should we applaud and just give glory and thanks to Jesus? Because this is eternally true, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Please do take a seat. This is the salvation we have received. And in verses 12 and 13, we read that we are called to be content in it. Not complacent, not looking at the world saying, oh, there's nothing to do, it's fine, everyone will be all right. But content in the salvation that we've received in order to serve and care for the world. Because knowing this salvation means that we can be content no matter what the situation. Paul writes, My dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. You see, there is a temptation to think that caring for each other enough will be enough to save us. That God will look at us and say, oh, well, they're so caring. That's great. That's enough to save them. Or that being humble enough will be enough to save us. Or that worshipping passionately enough would be enough to save us. But Paul writes explicitly that faith in Jesus Christ is not about working for your salvation. It's about working out your salvation. Working for your salvation looks like this. 
trying to give enough money, trying to care enough for other people, trying to get to enough worship services to force God to love you. Salvation in this model is always far off in the distance and we're constantly chasing after it and we're never getting there. That's working for your salvation. Working out your salvation still involves giving and worship, but it comes from a completely different perspective. Because when you're working out your salvation, you've already received it. You're not constantly trying to chase it. It's a bit like um, maybe being a godparent. Is anyone a godparent here? Hands up if you're a godparent. Yeah, a few godparents um, have that honour. I have a little godson. Uh, my wife and I, Beth, have a godson called Caleb. And he is two years old and he is gorgeous and wonderful in every way, shape and form. We became his godparents 18 months ago in a church in York. And on that day, we were his godparents. But we will spend the rest of our lives trying to work out how to be godparents. But the fact that we're godparents is never in question. We're just working out how to do it. Or take marriage. When two people stand at the front of this church as they did a couple of weekends ago when Maddie and Sam got married. I hear they're probably watching from honeymoon. So hi, Maddie and Sam. Um, When Maddie and Sam stood here and got married or when anyone stands in a church and gets married, from that day on, they are man and wife. But as anyone who's married will testify, you spend the rest of your lives trying to work out what that looks like. It's the same with salvation. On the moment that we confess Jesus is Lord and we're baptised in the name of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, salvation is ours. But we spend the rest of our lives working out what that will look like. R.C. Sproul, the uh, theologian, puts it like this. We are secure, not because we hold tightly onto Jesus, but because he holds tightly onto us. So how should we respond to this? Well, Paul would have us respond in the words of verse 13, to pay attention to God who works in us in order to will and to act to fulfill his good purpose. That is our response, to pay attention to the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives, pointing us to things that are not right and are not congruent with the salvation we have received, calling us to turn away from those things that don't fit with who we're called to be as followers of Jesus and pointing us to the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of God so that we may know his peace and his love. And that's how we're going to respond together today. Can I invite Ellie up? We are secure not because we hold tightly onto Jesus, but because he holds tightly onto us. 
Only when we know the comfort from God's love can we become a counter-cultural community that values others above ourselves. Only when we see the humility of Christ upon the cross can we find our true worth. Only when we are content in the salvation that we have already received can we begin to work out that salvation for Jesus' glory. Amen. So we're going to respond to this together. You may want to stand up. Um, Ellie's going to sing over us. Um, If you do want to stand up, please do get to your feet if if that's comfortable for you. Or you may want to say sitting still and put out your hands. Join in with this. If you're on the live stream, this is for you. Everyone is included in this. All of us are called to pay attention to what God is wanting to do in us. And there's lots of ways we could go with this, but we're simply going to pray, come Holy Spirit of God. You may want to close your eyes and put out your hands in front of you if that that helps you focus. Come Holy Spirit of God. It is God who works in us to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Holy Spirit, would you begin to put your finger on the parts of our lives that you are calling us either to turn away from or to step into? Maybe you sense something in that that bit about self-protectionism. You know you're holding on to something that you just don't feel able to be generous with out of fear. We pray, Holy Spirit, come. Release us from fear. Maybe you feel trapped in trying to work for your salvation. And tonight, that image of of working out your salvation has been really helpful. It's highlighted to you some things that God is saying about ways that you felt you needed to work to impress him. When the truth is you have received your salvation by faith. you are secure in his love not because of what you do but because of what he has done and maybe tonight you need a revelation of Jesus Christ who counted your life 
more valuable to him than his own. What a beautiful, blessed, life-changing truth. We're going to respond as Ellie sings over us. We pray, come, Holy Spirit.